Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation, a first check venture capital firm based in Brooklyn, New York. We invest in amazing technical teams and projects in New York City on day zero. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. This season of Origins is sponsored by Silicon Valley Bank and Cooley LLP. Silicon Valley Bank is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors, with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. They've been friends and partners to Notation since the beginning. To learn more about SVB services, visit svb.com. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high growth industries. It's the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. We've worked with Cooley since the very beginning. They've helped us form both notation funds. We recommend them to all the startups that we work with and many of our VC peers as well. Learn more about the firm and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors at CooleyGo.com. Mike Maples doesn't need much of an introduction, but we'll do one anyway. He founded Floodgate in 2006, one of the first seed funds in Silicon Valley, and they've since backed companies like Twitter, Lyft, Weebly, Okta, Demandforce, among many others. He was previously a co-founder of Motive and a director of product marketing at Tivoli Systems, which is now part of IBM. Mike. Yes. Thank you for, for having, having us. Me. Yeah. You're having us. Okay. In your office. Um, so we're out here in... Uh, at the Floodgate offices. Thank you for letting us invade. To start, if you could just tell us a little bit about uh, your background before venture, your time at, at Tivoli Emotive, that would be, a, I think, a great place to start. Yeah, so I, I started as a, a child of Silicon Valley, maybe even before the PC. So when I was in the first grade, what I asked for for my birthday was a HP calculator, which at the time was about, I think, $400, which would cost more than a Mac Pro in today's money. And so my parents couldn't really afford to get me one of those. Uh, but a couple of years later, they were cheap enough that I could get two, one to take apart and one to uh, actually use. And then- You grew uh, up here? So, well, I my dad was with IBM. And okay. so we moved every couple, three years. And when I was in uh, third to fifth grade, we were out here. And that's when um, the beginning of the PC revolution started. And by the time I was in junior high, we were back in upstate New York uh, my dad was involved with some of the original work on the IBM PC. Right. And so um, we got to have a version of it that was early when uh, over spring break, he just brought it home to see what we would do with it. And uh, and that's when I started to learn how to program computers and got really interested. Got it. Yeah. So you grew up in a home with computers at a very young it, it, age. Yeah. It's always and, a part of your life. Yeah. And I never really thought of computers as a business. For me, it was more of a hobby. And so I just liked tinkering with it. And uh, I never, never in my wildest dreams did I think that the tech industry would get to be like it is or that the right. most valuable companies in right. the world would be tech businesses. Your friends were into it too? Or was a, was a solo hobby? It, it was more sort of on my own. You know, there were always some... It, it, so undergrad, I went to Stanford. And there were obviously okay. people right. who were interested there. Right. But uh, even when I was graduating, most of the people who were perceived to be doing well weren't going into the computer business. They wanted to go and invest in banking or 
consulting or is that right? Even uh, out of yeah. Stanford? Oh yeah, for sure. This would have been so I was class of ninety, and so um, you know, Microsoft was starting to do well and just right. gone public. Right. But it wasn't uh, it, it it wasn't something that a whole lot of people thought was the first priority. Right, and pre pre internet, I oh, guess for sure. Yeah. yeah, by a wide margin. You went to Tivoli as a as a product marketer it, it, after it, it, yeah. After so college, it, at first I went to Silicon Graphics, and I was okay. a product manager in the digital media group. And so we worked with people like Industrial Light and Magic to help them use. SGI computers to make special effects in the movies like Jurassic Park and mm-hmm. The Abyss mm-hmm. and Terminator right. 2. And then I went to Harvard Business School and and, and then spent about 10 years in Austin at uh, Tivoli Systems as part of the startup team and then Motive, which I helped co-found. And what, what brought you to Austin specifically? The company or the was there a tech community there that drew you? Well, it was, it was funny because, you know, growing up, I'd always really looked up to David Packard and I thought it was too late to be the David Packard of Silicon Mm. Valley. And so I thought Mm. I'd go down to Austin and try to find the next Silicon Valley. And I I eventually concluded there is no next Silicon Valley Mm. that as much as I liked Austin, that if I uh, wanted to, to be an investor someday, that it was a good idea for me to go back to Silicon Valley and be sort of in the middle of where most of the action was. But I spent about a little over 10 years in Austin and ha- had a great experience there and was involved with some of the important companies there. So it was, right. you know, it was a great, a great right. opportunity. You you co-founded Motive after Tivoli? Right. Is that right? Yes. What was it about that company that, you know, encouraged you to leave Tivoli and start start your own? Was that always the idea? You always wanted to be a founder? Well, yeah. Well, I, I find that sometimes uh, when you start a company, it doesn't conform to any master plan. Right. And so I was at Tivoli and we got bought by IBM and this was in 1996, I think it was. And so we're like, we're just sitting on the sidelines here. The internet's happening. We're sitting here inside of IBM doing client server stuff. Mm-hmm. We need to to get more involved with the internet. And so we spent a long time coming up with different ideas about how was the internet going to impact the future of computing. And so Motive was sort of an outgrowth of our beliefs that everything would be connected on the internet someday and that service would be delivered primarily over the internet rather than telephone. And so that was kind of the genesis of, of the company. And you left with colleagues from, from Tivoli? We, we did. Uh, yeah. f- four of the five founders were ex-Tivoli and one was from Next. And so Next, right around then, had been bought by Apple. Mm-hmm. What was the process of raising capital at that time? It, at the time, it was uh, fairly straightforward. We were lucky. And so uh, Tivoli had been a huge win for Austin Ventures. Right. And so Austin Ventures okay. basically said, we're in. And then we were lucky enough that we we made this spreadsheet. It's kind of quaint to think about who would we like to work with in Silicon Valley. And at the time, uh, Jim Breyer at Excel had invested in both Remedy as well as UUNet. And so we were, we were thinking about tech support. We were thinking about the internet and infrastructure. And so he seemed to be a perfect uh, fit for that. And so uh, uh, Jim Breyer and Peter Wagner came down from California to visit with us. And on the ride back to the airport, Jim's like, okay, we're in. So our, our first round was done. Um, uh, Austin Ventures of the lead and then Excel came hmm. in with, with Jim involved. So, so you guys knew what you were doing. Well, we were, you know, we had come off a pretty Unlike big success. Unlike some of the other maybe founder stories where you hear, you know, kind of weaving and ducking and trying to figure out 
who the right people are, you had a you had a pretty good sense. It, from yeah, the we, and and we didn't uh, we weren't one of those stories that you hear about where they got passed on fifty times. Right, right? we had a right. pretty pretty good success going in raising money, and if anything. If you're not careful, you get a, a sense of entitlement that it's easy to raise, and so uh, we were always very mindful of that. And we didn't we didn't celebrate fundraising rounds very often inside the company because we never really thought it proves anything. Right. It just right. proves that people will write you a check, but it doesn't prove you have customers right. or product or anything. What were some of the lessons in those years as a founder of the company? Well, we we went through the best of times and the worst of times, and so we started the company in '97. And in 1999, I think we had um, uh, $60 million in bookings against a target wow. of $10 million, wow. something like that. So we, wow. so we were just crushing it, and we were, we were going to go public in 2000, and Chuck Phillips from Morgan Stanley was our lead banker. And we were literally one week away from going on our IPO roadshow, and then the market crashed. Wow. And we thought, well, you know, the longest the market window's ever been closed is nine months. Well, four years later, we went public, mm-hmm. and so it was. Um, it, it it went. You you go through this wild euphoria to uh, now. All of a sudden, the whole world is just pessimistic on the internet and thinks the internet isn't even for real and that it's worth nothing. And uh, and and you know, it's you go through this mode where it's only over when you decide to quit. And so we just really had to fight and scrap and scrape and bleed our way to right. getting this thing to the promised land. Right. Did you have to raise additional capital at that time, or the company was profitable, so you could kind of see it through? We did, but we we well, we had to raise money, but we had to run trick plays. Like we would we would find a company in a venture capital funds portfolio that had raised a lot of cash, but clearly hmm. wasn't going to be worth a lot, and we would convince that firm to, hey, why don't you merge it into hmm. uh, Motive because that that money is going to more likely be useful, right? Applied right. to the Motive products and opportunity. So, you know, when you you get into this mode where you just have to MacGyver miracle right. after miracle and you just right. do whatever whatever it takes to kind of get to the next base and keep going. When did you think uh, about starting to invest? Were you were you angel investing in Austin? No, I, no, I'd never angel invested before and I never I never would have thought of myself as ever being a VC. Mm-hmm. And so, um when when uh, Motive had gone public, uh, I was thinking about coming back to California, but uh, John Thornton at Austin Ventures also talked to me about being a venture capitalist. And at the time, I didn't really know much about it. And it's really easy to think the other person's job is easy compared to yours. And right. so a lot of people think they would be good VCs and they have no clue as to why or why it's right. hard or different. Right. So I, I spent time with John and the partners at Austin Ventures, and I went from being totally skeptical to pretty darn interested. Mm-hmm. And then I came up to Silicon Valley and had some visits up here and realized that, at least for my own sensibilities, if I was going to be in venture, I needed to come back to California. And the only thing I hadn't figured out was that it would be hard to get a job in VC in California just because – Austin Ventures was talking to me about it. And Austin doesn't mean you just show up cold in Silicon Valley and say, hey, I'm interviewing for a VC job. Right. So how did you do that? Oh, I I failed at it. So I talked to some firms and none of them would hire me. They said, have you ever made an angel investment before? I said, no. Do you know anything about the web? I said, not a lot. And (laughs) uh, have you ever been an investor of any kind? I said, not really. Right. And uh, and then they're like, well, it, let's definitely keep in touch, but I don't I don't know mm-hmm. if this is going to work, and mm-hmm. at least not the short term. 
But Foundation Capital was nice enough to let me spend nine months there as an entrepreneur in residence. And okay. then August Capital did the same. And that's when I started to really look at investing and try to figure out if I if I was good at it, whether I liked it, whether it could be something I could make a career at. Was there less of an interest in hiring operators as VCs back then? Because now you think, you know, someone has been through the entire life cycle of a company, taken a company public. There's many firms today, I think, that would probably hire that person, even without much investing experience. Well, maybe, but but I think two things. I think, first of all, VCs tend to like to bring partners on board that they've worked with before. Right, and right. so the case of Austin Ventures had made him money twice and had known him for 10 years very well. I mean, it's like I knew the partners almost as well as some of the young principals and partners knew the mm-hmm. partners. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, not knowing the people is a real disadvantage. And then the other thing is, and I, I think I learned this from Dave Marcourt, first, it was um, at, over at August, it's different. Being a great buyer is different from b- being a great builder. And a lot of people who've built companies think they'd know how to invest in companies, but there's no evidence that they would. Right. And it's it's easy to think that uh, being a buyer is an easier job. But the reality is every profession has a top 10% in that profession. Yeah. And, um, you know, changing your frame of mind from, oh, I could make this happen to, oh, I have to bet on this team and this idea, different mm-hmm. different altogether. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the it's, it's very difficult for a lot of operators to transition effectively, mm-hmm. I think. What were the things that you began to see during your time at Foundation and, um, and August that made you begin to believe that you could be an investor, that you'd be good at it, that you maybe had a unique strategy and way of going about it. And when did you ultimately decide right. to found, how did that lead to the founding? Yes. So first of all, I liked it a lot. I liked meeting founders, but what was happening was a lot of the founders who pitched me, really all they wanted to raise was a million dollars. Right. And it's hard to believe now, but in 2005, you couldn't raise a million dollars in Silicon Valley. You either raised a quarter of a million from angels, or you went straight to the $5 million Mm -hmm. series A. Mm -hmm. And so the problem with investing a million dollars is people were raising funds, $300 million and above. And so at Foundation Capital, a $1 million investment, even if it's a a miracle blockbuster company, isn't going to return a $500 million fund. And so I got to thinking, well, what if you only had a $25 million fund? Then Then it might get pretty interesting. And so after nine months at Foundation and nine months at August, I thought, I really ought to give this a try. And if I don't, I'll always regret not trying. Mm-hmm. And so I, the first fund I raised was a little bit less than $15 million, mm-hmm. And I was just in bit, you know, the saying was that 500000 is the new $5 million. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I just got in business doing that. How? Um, Austin Ventures. So they, okay. uh, I, they said, hey, you know, it seems like you have a knack for this. And, and, you know, 500000 is the new $5 million. It wasn't just the amount I wanted to invest. We were seeing things like open source software and right. offshore uh, right. labor and search engine marketing and ubiquitous broadband penetration and just commodity hardware. And so you really could, when we started Motive, you had to buy Solaris on, uh, or Solaris servers running Oracle databases hosted in Exodus to even hit go. And now all of a sudden you could start for almost nothing. And so... So there, it felt like there was a convergence of opportunity. So Austin Venture said, you know, this seems pretty interesting. How much do you want to raise? Hmm. And I said, well, 
what's an amount where if you lost it all, we're still we still get along. <laughs> right. And so that was that was the right. amount. That was right. fund one was uh, what's what's an amount where if, if I lose it all, or if I decide I don't want to do this after all, or you decide You're you don't think come, this is a come good break idea. My knees. Yeah, <laughs> and, 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 you know, it, it, I just it, I, I really value my friendship with yeah. those people, and I didn't want to screw it up over. Yeah. Turning it turning out not to be a good VC. Yep. What were the lessons and takeaways during that time? Because I assume, I mean, you had never made an investment before. Yeah. I assume maybe you didn't have a sound of, of approach to things like portfolio construction and pro rata and all those things today. How did you begin to take that and form, you know, the uh, a real portfolio? Well, yeah. So, and I, I had a little bit of a, uh, a run of beginner's luck with my angel investing. So, okay. So, I I moved to California in early two thousand five, and I raised fund one in the summer of 06. Okay. And by then, I'd already invested in the seed round of Dig, which was starting okay. to work. And yeah, uh, I was involved with a company called Yumi Networks that people were excited about, and Vinod Kosla had invested, and yep. so there was some early validation of of what I was doing. But but and this is one of the things that surprises me about new fund managers. I kind of felt like if you're going to raise money and do a fund, you have to know and love your business. And so whatever your business is, even if your business is selling cigarettes, fundamentally, right, right. your business is growing tobacco, rolling it up in paper, and selling it to people using advertising <laughs> who like to smoke a lot. Right. And it's like you got to understand the entire end-to-end value delivery system of how value creation happens and have like a genuine passion and intellectual curiosity. Now, I've never wanted to run a cigarette company, so I never really got into that. But every company I'd ever been part of before, I knew that the way the business worked intimately. And so when I was thinking about starting Floodgate, I really spent a lot of time with experienced venture capitalists saying, okay, What's the minimum number of deals for statistical diversification? What's a number where the the marginal benefits of diversification go away? Uh, how do you think about upfront versus reserves? Why is that? Uh, you know, and it it really surprised me how how much of an opportunity there was to learn a bunch about it if you just asked a bunch of first principles questions. And so the, by the time I went in, I had a pretty good idea of what what I thought we needed to okay. do. Okay. And what was the strategy for that first fund? The 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 basic idea was uh, $500,000 at a time, 70% upfront, 30% in reserves, mm-hmm. which people thought was crazy risky, but I would, uh, you know, I would go to bat for that strategy over and over again mm-hmm. given what I'd learned about how to think about getting paid for the risk that you take. Right. So if- 500K into 30-ish companies, something like I, I think it was a little less. I, I want to say it was more like 20 or so. And very early yeah. seed seed stuff. Too early or way too early, yeah. Right. Why would you go to bat for that strategy today? A lot of seed managers, I've learned, are too reliant on anecdotal wisdom rather than having a theoretical basis. So if you think about it, if you're a seed fund – you can get paid for the risk you take two ways. One is you invest before the Series A firms. So if you invest before Benchmark and Sequoia and Excel and Greylock, in theory, you're paying less money per percentage mm-hmm. that you own. Yep. And you get pricing power because you're not competing with those firms. 
because the the it's pre-product market fit. And so so the, the first reason that you want to have a lot up front is that's when you get a chance at ownership. That's when you get a right. chance to make a difference. That's when you get all investing fundamentally is how you get paid for the risk you take. Right. And so like if you're a seed fund, your raison d'etre is to be good at that round. Yeah. So then where else is your money competitively advantaged? Well, pro rata rights. But what a lot of seed funds do is they say, well, I'm going to make a huge number of bets, and then I'm going to have a huge reserve for following on and doubling down on my winners. Well, if you're benchmarker Sequoia, you get to choose not just among floodgates seed-funded deals. You get to look at baselines seed-funded deals and first-rounds seed-funded deals. And so they have more optionality of what deals to do than you do. Mm-hmm. And that's number one. Number two is it's their specialty. It's like what they do is their day job all the right. time. And so I think for the most part, following on should primarily be exercising your pro rata rights. And your pro rata rights are exactly that, a right. And I think for the most part, you'd be better off indexing the top tier Series A firms. Mm-hmm. And if, if, if Benchmark or Sequoia comes in, more often than not, the best use of your reserves is to exercise your pro rata rights in those situations. What I find most seed funds do, though, is they overestimate their follow-on investing skill. Hmm. And because of that, they over-allocate money to reserves. And they, you know... And don't necessarily apply that same discipline to it, as in they just blanketly correct. do they, all the reserves they, where they, they should really be putting the bulk of the of the reserves in the companies that are actually... The true they, winners. They do seed extensions and right, seed right, twos right. and seed threes right. and bridges and stuff like that. And they they daydream that their money is competitively advantaged. But like mm. if you if you step back and just say on a theoretical basis, what what is it that you know that the market doesn't know? Why are you why is your wisdom greater than the wisdom of the crowds? Mm. Uh it's very hard to make a theoretical case that that's true. There is one exception, and that is let's say you're on the board of a company. And it crushed the numbers and it's about to inflect and all of Silicon Valley is going to know within 30 to 60 days. Sometimes it makes sense to say, I'll give you a term sheet right now for this amount. Right. Uh, But but for the most part, I find that you should always play offense with your money. You should invest when your money is competitively advantaged. And there's really three cases. One is before the rest of the world cares, which is why mm-hmm. to be a seed fund. Right. Number two is pro rata rights that the rest of the world doesn't have that only you have. And number three is I know something on the tip of my tongue, tangible, mm-hmm. that the rest of the world doesn't know. But n- hoping for the best and being optimistic and believing in the founders is not an example of that. Right. What things went well in that first fund and what things didn't? Like, did if and looking back now and Knowing that information and and how to allocate seed dollars, yeah. Do you feel like you got it got it right? Um, I think I got it accidentally right. Okay. I think that in fund one, it was just I did seventy thirty because I just hardly had any money. Uh, if I could do fund one again, I would have improved my follow on investing skill. So I just had thirty percent reserves, and I just did whatever I could with the money to keep yep. the companies afloat and yep. go into next base. Yep. Fund two, it's interesting. We were 50-50 because we thought, okay, fund two is a $35 million fund. And ironically, had we gone 70-30, fund fund two has better absolute returns on the going-in investments that we made. Mm -hmm. But because we were 50-50 instead of 70-30, 
we we uh, lost an opportunity for even more exit profits right. than we had. Right. I was talking to someone recently. They said that one way to potentially think about pro rata, I'd be curious to hear what you think. I'm jumping around a little bit now is, um, do you have high enough conviction to want to do super pro rata? Uh-huh. As in really lean into the company? Yep. Or, or zero? Yep. And anything in the middle is kind of half-assed bet. Uh, somewhat. I, I'd say that, Follow-on investing, when you really step back and think about it, is more like index investing than picking in some ways. And here's why. Like when you pick, you have infinite, you have an infinite range of companies to choose from, and, and, and you get to make that first selection and you write that first check. Mm-hmm. But all follow-on investing involves you being allowed to invest from a fixed pool of companies. Right. And so when you're in that mode – you're always asking the question, is my wisdom overtly greater than the wisdom of the crowds? And index investing kind of assumes that your wisdom is not greater than the wisdom of crowds unless you know something that you're sure you know. Right. And so the problem that I think most people have is that they know things that aren't so. They they believe they know more than the rest of the market Mm. because, quote, unquote, they had a board seat or they know the founders better. But- I give the market a lot of credit for being able to select what the good Series A candidates mm-hmm. are. Like, I think mm-hmm. Benchmark and Sequoia are pretty good at that job. Right. And so, like, I'd, I'd much rather index them when they choose to invest. Yep. And if I look at Fund One, what was the best performer in Fund One? Demand Force, who followed me in Demand Force, Bill Girl at Benchmark. What was the second best performer? Weebly, who followed me in Weebly, Rule Off at Sequoia. Third best mm-hmm. was Twitch, who followed me in Twitch, Bessemer. <laughs> okay, let's look at Fund Two. Right. Best performer is Lyft, who followed us in Lyft. Founders Fund, Andreessen Horowitz. Okay, the second best performer is Okta, who f- f- followed us in Okta. Uh, Greylock, uh, Sequoia. And so, um, generally speaking, I find that awesome upstream capital is a strong signal that mm-hmm. you were right on the seed bet. Mm. And that a lack of upstream quality interest, be careful not to assume you know something they don't know. Right. Especially over, I guess, a number of years. Yeah. yeah. Right. And what I found is that had I had I gone all in on every time a great firm followed, we would have lost money as much as not. But uh, if we had done that and invested when we knew something explicitly – our skill would have gone up dramatically in our follow-on investing. How did you think about growing Floodgate? So Floodgate, Fund One, just you. Yeah. Uh, backed by a firm that that you knew that you knew well. Yeah. Just enough money that you could lose it all and not lose all your friends. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, how did you go from that to say, all right, you know, I think there's something here. I want to think about scaling the capital a little bit, scaling the firm thinking about adding partners, like when, when did you really commit to Floodgate long-term as a firm? Yeah. And so I always said that Fund One was like a booster rocket. It was it was either going to launch Floodgate into escape velocity and into outer space, or it right. would just flame out and that would be right. that. And so I didn't- uh, What would you have done otherwise? It, it, yeah. Well, a lot, of, a lot of first-time fund managers, I think, make the mistake of declaring how much they want to raise, and then they go out on this crazy long fundraising tour. Mm. And I, I, I like to say that the amount I like to raise is that which I could raise in 45 days or less. And so uh, Austin Ventures said, I want to put in $15 million. And then I went to everybody else who was interested, individuals, and said, I'm going to close on this in 30 days. Mm-hmm. So if you're interested, now's the time. Right. 
And so fun too, Phil Horsley of Horsley Bridge got mm-hmm. interested and he said, I can't believe you went off and raised this money without even pitching us. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, we've gotten to know each other and I, I feel like it would be a mistake to get to know you under the circumstances of asking for money. And so now mm-hmm. we've got a couple, three years to really get to know each other, not under that pressure. Right. And so eventually he said, would you consider taking $15 million from Horsley Bridge? In that first fund? In fund two. In fund uh, so, two. So um, some of the people that I admire, I went to and said, what do you think about this idea? And they said, well, you probably have your happy ears on. I doubt Horsley Bridge is going to give you $15 million. Right. Uh, and so- Why? Um, well, they were like, you don't have any partners yet. Uh, you don't have that much of a track record. Right. Your fund size isn't big enough for right. them to write a check that's big. Right. Look, let's say they write $15 million. Are you going to raise 100? You know, how does right. that even work? Right. So, so I said, I'm, you know, I'm pretty sure that Phil's interested. And so Catherine Gould uh, said, why don't I come with you to your next meeting with Horsley Bridge? And so we go Who's there. That? And Who's Catherine? So Catherine was one of the founders at Foundation Capital. That's right. That's and unfortunately, right. she right. passed away That's a right. couple of years ago. That's right. But she, um, uh, she came by and, and uh, we had this meeting and a whole bunch of partners showed up and it took mm-hmm. many hours. Mm-hmm. And we go down in the elevator. She goes, you're right. You don't have your happy years on. Guess what? You're right. fundraising. Right. So uh, that's you pretty know, cool. So she introduced me to Judith Elsia at yeah. Weather Gauge and She's then the University of Chicago. And so Fund One was those those three LPs, mm-hmm. or sorry, Fund Two. Right. And that was my first kind of quote unquote legitimate fund where right. I was had real LPs and right. uh, had had the, the the type of accountability that you'd have. As a, as a normal institutional fund. And then um, they were quite worried at the time that I was a single GP mm-hmm. fund, but I never advertised when I was going to get a partner or how mm-hmm. I was going to do that. But uh, within two months of closing on fund two, I already had a line of sight that I wanted to work with Ann. And so mm-hmm. uh, I thought it would be a mistake to promise that before closing the fund. Mm-hmm. But So I waited until after we were done. And then um, uh, convinced Ann to spend part-time and then eventually full-time. And then we rebranded it as Floodgate. How from, did you know Ann? Uh, she was uh, helping Steve Blank teach a class at Stanford along okay. with Audrey McLean okay. on um, startups. And so she was just very broadly smart. She'd worked at Charles River Ventures in the past. And so, uh, and and she believed a lot in this vision of 500,000 to the new 5 million. And so- right. It, it felt like a good idea. I tried to get her to drop out of her PhD program, but she was like, no, not so fast. And so she would come in uh, a few days a week and we would just look at things together and see if we had the right chemistry to work together. What were the key things that changed as you became, I guess, quote unquote, you know, institutional in nature and added partners? Did Did your style change? Did you, or was it really just, you know, more dollars around the same strategy? Um, you know, it's it's remarkable how little it changed. The, the The big change was outside of us. It was that in the, in the early days, a lot of people didn't believe there would be such a thing as an institutional seed fund. Right. And so in the early days, it was really a category creation problem. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't pitch LPs like most people would. I said, there's going to be a new category of firm. Mm-hmm. And the angels aren't going to be able to do it because they don't know how to interact with LPs and manage funds. And the the big VC firms that matter won't be able to do it because 
you know, if you're Peter Fenton at Benchmark, why are you going to want to quit that job and start yeah. a seed fund? Yeah. And yeah. so, so I said, there's going to be this gap in, in the market that could be filled by some people. Well, you know, by 2011, 2012, there were hundreds of seed funds right. raising billions a year. Right. So I don't think we ever really changed that much, but the world around us changed. The world went from being skeptical about seed funds to everybody wanted to start one right. and everybody wanted to fund right. one. At what point did founders catch on? Because I assume in the early years also, there was some education where founders would come into your office, say, we want 3 million bucks because that's just what they thought they had to raise to talk to an institutional yeah. firm. And he had to kind of say, well, maybe think about it this different you way. Know, and you know, when did that change? It's funny, you know, founders, I really caught on to them, right? So, okay. Uh, okay. you know, it, it's funny, just as a sidebar, too many venture firms create fund vehicles because of fear of missing out. And so you see big VC firms, they're like, okay, we got to have a seed initiative. Mm-hmm. Or you see that I got to have a growth fund. Oh, they have one too. I need one. And what I learned that was powerful is the best way to have a great fund is to solve an entrepreneur's problem right. that isn't being solved. Right. And so don't pay attention to what the other fund managers are doing. Pay attention to what entrepreneurs want that they're not getting. And some of the other ideas that we're working on that I can't yet talk about are always based on that. It's never based on what other people in the fund mm-hmm. ecosystem are doing. It's based on what they're not doing that entrepreneurs wish they would do. So that was that was good for us. And, and for a time, we couldn't do the whole round. And so I'd have to call up Steve Anderson at baseline. I'd have to call up Josh Koppelman at first round because we just couldn't scare up a round on yep. our own. And so yep. we did a bunch of things together. Yep. So I, I heard you speak at this, I think it was some sort of LPGB conference like a year or two ago. It might have been a Sindana conference, some, something. And you said something that has stuck with me since, which was um, your fund size is your strategy. Yes. Don't forget that. Yes. So now you have, fast forward a number of years as you've been building Floodgate, there's tons of funds in yes. the market today. There's seed funds now that are, you know, range from $25 million to 300 million. (laughs) The nomenclature has become difficult to parse between seed and series A and pre-seed and everything else. Yeah. What did you, I mean, I guess, you know, it's obviously clear what you mean by that, but, but could you explain that a bit? Yeah. So a lot of people think about their fund size as a function of how many investors they have and how many deals they'll do uh, across investors. And I don't like that approach. Uh, and and here's why what i've what i've learned is a couple things one is that successful startup outcomes are actually a rare event mm-hmm. and so something like 10 companies out of over 1500 seed funded companies in a year will create at least 95% right. of all exit profits right. so then you say okay well it's that means it's following a power law distribution and what what i found when i talked to our lps was that the fund portfolios within the funds themselves would follow a power law distribution. And so if you step back and say, okay, let's say I want to have a, a three times fund. Well, the first, the best company is going to return half of all that profit pool. And then the second best might return a fourth and the next right. best might return an eighth right. and so on. Well, if that's true, your best company has to return 1.5x the fund by itself. To do 3X. To do 3X. And so so you say, okay, what is your fund size really? It's sort of like when you're qualifying for the Olympic decathlon and you put the pole vault height. It's really the height of the pole that you have to clear. And so 
if you say I'm raising a $100 million fund, what you're really telling LPs is I'm committing to having our best exit return $150 million of exit profit. And to me, that's that's the most valid way to look at it. And that's independent of how many partners you have or how many deals you do or, or whatever the case may be. I see people argue this all the time. They say, well, I'm smaller fund. I have dual track exits. I could do this. I've got some new meaning equation that works. I've never seen it be true. Right. I've asked LPs right. time and again over decades, show me the funds that have been 3X or better. Show me the ones 5X or better, 10X or better. There was always a company that was the mm-hmm. super performer in the mm-hmm. fund that created the lion's share of economics of the fund. And and when you step back and think about it, it makes perfect sense because that's just the way the world is in startups. Right. And so you look at a lot of funds today, I guess, and say, based on ownership, based on where they're investing, and based on their fund size, you can do the quick math and just say, it's probably not going to all add up. Never happened. And, right. and the problem is some of these funds, they'll get applause from LPs in the short term or they'll get good good uh, PR. But a, a billion-dollar exit where you own 2%, it doesn't matter. Right. Well, if you're, a, if you're a $20 million fund, it sort of matters. But if you're a $100 million fund, it hardly matters. Because uh, if that's if that's what you're getting on your billion dollar exits, you really got a problem. And so uh, I think that a lot of funds are not intellectually honest about the commitment they're making to exit size when they raise their fund size. Mm. How do you maintain ownership discipline, especially in like a crazy market in the heart of Silicon Valley? There's so much money. There's so many funds. Knowing and being what seems pretty clearly committed to the basic math at yeah. floodgate you know how how and when do you maybe break your rules whether it's whether it's ownership targets or other criteria yeah. around the fund because i've got to believe you make exceptions from time to time i'm curious how and how and when you do that yeah and we you know it's it's tricky because in the end if you believe a company really could be one of the top 10 exits of the year it's and and you get in at five percent. Mm-hmm. You take that as a consolation prize, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that that in the end, being involved in as many of those top ten exits of the year as you can dominates all other questions. Right. But it's we but then I, I always worry. I think about that, and I always worry. All right, well then, all of a sudden we've built an entire portfolio. Yeah, of the five percent ownership companies, right. When we committed to whatever it was, 10 or 15%. That's right. And so you make one exception, then you make two, then you make three. You know, how do you build discipline around that? Yeah, and what we've, and I don't know if this would work for everybody, but we do continuous forecasting. So there's a book that I really like called Super Forecasters, and it, it talks about how amateurs can outpredict experts if they have an intellectually diverse team, if they have a process that everybody believes in. And if they forecast, they write down what they believe the truth is to the best of their knowledge at the time, and then they revisit the question once a month or so. And so when we do a fund now, we'll say, okay, here's our fund size. We believe that our typical deal size is in this range of dollars in this range of ownership. And then we'll a month, two months, three months later, depending on the frequency look at it and say, okay, when we were sober, here's what we thought the truth was, like what's really happening on the ground? Mm -hmm. What's surprising us? 
And then you say, okay, well, based on the facts of the ground, do we still believe our forecast? Maybe we can own more than we thought. Maybe we can pay lower prices than we thought. Maybe we can own less, higher prices. Uh, but we have to we have to always revisit what we think the truth is based on the facts of the ground that surprised us. And the reason that if you have an intellectually diverse team, a process with integrity and continuous forecasting can work is that you don't get too attached to being right and you become egoless in your predictions. And so you want the whole team saying, it's not about your vision versus mine or whether you're right versus I'm right. It's more like we all wrote down on that whiteboard, here's what right. we think the truth is right now. Right. And we're going to get to come back and check it out in three months or a month or however long. So we we do forecasting for a lot of things. One is uh, the pace of our investing, how many dollars out, ownership, uh, average uh, deal size, average price we pay. Um, and and these days we're also applying forecasting a lot to expected reserves and how much to put in what types of deals and that, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Forecasting, I find, is incredibly important. The The more uncertain the future is, the, the more valuable a, a mechanism to forecast well is. Right. So fast forward to today. You just raised floodgates six. Six. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Terrifying. Uh, congrats. Yeah. Thanks. Um, yeah. It's a larger fund. It's it's is having one thirty one. One thirty one. What is fundamentally different about the fund and strategy today compared to when you first started? If if anything, it, it it's not that different. I would say that what we're trying to do is really double down on our circle of competence. So. I don't know if you've ever seen this talk that Buffett gives, but he he said one time that Ted Williams said that if if a, if a ball comes within a certain region in the art of science art and science of hitting, he'd bat 450. But if he took a swing at a mm. at a pitch outside of his circle of competence, he'd bat like 130. And so he used to say the art and science of hitting is swinging at balls that are in your circle of competence. Well, investing is a game where there are no called strikes. And so, in theory, you can invest only when something's in your circle of incompetence mm -hmm. well, or, it, or circle of right. competence. Well, in order to do that, you first of all have to know what that is. And so, we've done a lot of work trying to figure out, okay, let's look at the Lyft investment. Anne invested $750,000 at $5.5 million post money. Mm -hmm. So, we need more of those. Mm -hmm. And if we can do those, we'll be very good at 131 mm -hmm. million. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and you know, uh, so we're we believe we invested at 2.1 million pre. We should have invested more, and the the option was available to invest more. Same thing was true of Justin TV, which became Twitch, is done mm -hmm. at three million pre. Um, and you know, it's interesting. I, I think that Uber was done at less less than six million yeah, post money. I think so. Yeah. And so one one observation is it helps to go back in time and say, what are the best seed rounds we've ever done? And if we did more of those, could we be really good at as a hundred thirty one million dollar fund? The answer we believe is yes. Right. The other thing is we need to dramatically improve our follow on skill. So I think we've been overly optimistic in some of our follow-on investing. Mm -hmm. And I think now we're we're much clearer up front in, in expectation setting with founders as well as uh, our own internal beliefs about when should we follow on and how aggressively mm -hmm. and, you know, when not to. How do you compete in an environment that's become 
way more competitive today. Yeah. So I assume when you were first starting Floodgate, like how many other folks were doing what you were doing? Oh, I think that we we thought about the numbers and we believed there were probably $70 million of organized seed capital in the world. That's And now it's billions a year being raised. Yeah, it's crazy. Does that matter? Does that affect you guys? Huge amount. So what what happens is there are more seed funded deals, way more than there were 10 years ago. The average price is way higher. Right. The burn tends to be higher because just real estate costs more. Yep. Salaries are up. And and there aren't proportionally that many more Series A's being done. So you think about it. Let's imagine that Fund 1 ends up being a 10x fund, which could happen. Uh, well, if you're if now the prices are 2 to 3x higher and the probability of getting a Series A round done is a third as much or yeah. half as much, yeah. Even to be a, a a 3x fund, you'd have to perform at a higher level than you did back in those days yeah. to be a 10x fund. And so I think that's the first problem. Now, the opportunity is because there's so many seed funds and because I think that there is a reflexive tendency to chase traction. And so I think that the mistake that a lot of seed funds are making is they're chasing heat at high prices. Yep. And that's a recipe for getting creamed. And so I think what we need to do is be the best pre-product market fit investors there are. And that's how we get pricing power and that's how we get paid for the risk that we take. And if, if we can do that, I think we can be pretty good. But it, it means we have to develop a set of skills that not everybody's developing. And we have to have a conviction that we have those skills. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? Uh, I just think that- Without pre- yeah, maybe giving without away, giving away the secret sauce. Secrets, I, think, yeah. I think that pre-product market fit investing is way more about understanding the leading activities that produce product market fit rather than the lagging variables that you measure that are signals mm-hmm. of product market fit. Because the more signals you get of impending product market fit, the more competition you're going to see. And now you get stuck between a bunch of seed firms competing for traction versus Benchmark and Sequoia and Excel and Greylock, those firms, they can wait to determine the valid traction. And they've got people at their firms who are better than most seed investors at that. Are you looking in different places than when you were looking 10 years ago? Like, I assume 10 years ago, you show up in the Valley. There's not that many people doing what you're doing. Yeah. You kind of pick the cream of the crop here. Yeah. Are you looking farther out? Um, I Well, I'd say, yeah. Uh, but, I, but I'd say that we like to think that there are vertical networks that you look at. So okay. a vertical network could be winning in crypto or it okay. could be, let's be awesome at security because Ann got her PhD there or, mm-hmm. um, you know, cloud. Right. Uh, whereas horizontal networks are more like, I wonder how many Stanford Mayfield fellows are starting mm-hmm. a company uh, mm-hmm. or uh, we should we should keep in touch with uh, the the YC batch founders from a couple of years right. ago or right. that kind of right. thing. And so a lot of it is just being proactive about, uh, I like to say it's more of a people flow business than a deal flow business. And so we try as hard as we can to find the startups before they're out raising and before it's an auction and try, hopefully win the preference of the founders in that in that phase. Uh, last question for you. Do, sure. Do you still enjoy the job in the same way that you did 10 years ago? Do you see, do you have another 10, 20 years in you? Yeah. I mean, I went through a phase where I was on too many boards. This is probably the biggest mistake I made is, you know, before you know it as a seed investor, you're on 20 boards right. and I just wasn't enjoying it anymore. And so now I'm down to 10, which changed 
things dramatically. Because you stepped off or they exited or just? All the above. Okay. And yeah. I just started yeah. to get more disciplined about how long I'd stay on. And I think that that uh, right now I'm more excited than I've been in a long time. There are There are opportunities where it's just obvious to me certain things are going to happen. And I feel a lot of conviction about what we're doing in some areas. And I in the early days in 05 and 06, even though everybody didn't believe yet, you could tell it was going to work. Like you just, just every now and then, you know, your preparation regimen's right and you right. know you've done the work <laughs> right. and you right. know it's going to work. And so that's how I feel these days about a lot of what we're doing. Uh, whereas in the past, I've been like, oh my gosh, there's a lot of competitors. We need to get better and up our game. I still feel that way, but I also feel like we've dramatically upped our game in response hmm. to what needs to happen. So we'll see. We'll see if we can do it. Mike, thank you for taking the time. Super yeah. appreciate it. Yeah, thanks Thanks for having me, and good luck with Notation. This podcast was created by Nick Charles and Alex Lines, partners at Notation Capital. Notation is a first-check venture capital firm in New York. We work with technical founding teams in the trenches from day zero. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. Thanks to Cooley for sponsoring this episode. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high-growth industries. It is the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. At Notation, we love working with Cooley and recommend them to all the companies we work with. Learn more about the firm at Cooley.com and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors, CooleyGo.com. We'd also like to thank Silicon Valley Bank. SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors. Their experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the SVB team for advice on strategic, operational, and tactical issues and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. If you like this episode, please share and remember to tag it with the hashtag OpenLP. We'd also like to thank Ben Glaway, who is our amazing audio engineer. You should work with him. You can find Ben on Twitter at visible underscore sound.